Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Real World Talk with CODA. My name is Zoe, I'm your host today, and I'm very excited to have Dr. Ankit Consagra from UT Southwestern today as our guest. Dr. Consagra, welcome. Thank you, Zoe, and thank you to Kota for inviting me to this podcast. I think the two last speakers have been fantastic, so I think I have a big shoes to fill as we go in this conversation, but I can tell a little bit about myself. You know, I'm an oncologist, a medical oncologist at UT Southwestern in Dallas. I predominantly take care of patients with blood cancer, so myeloma, lymphoma, leukemia, and the related therapies includes a lot of stem cell transplant. That's my clinical part of it, and my research part of it, I'm a clinical researcher. I predominantly do clinical work and what I would call as real-world analysis, retrospective studies, and finding data in there, finding new hypotheses or generating new hypotheses for clinical evidence or clinical trials. That's really exciting. And of course, a big area of unmet need and an area where there's still a lot of discovery to do, both in the patient treatment side, as well as on the basic science side as well. With, you know, a lot of academic centers, right, obviously research is a very big component, but it's not always focused on real world data, right? Clinical trials are, of course, a staple of academic research, a lot of literature review as well. You know, what led you to be interested in using real world data as an avenue for research? That's such a fantastic question, Zoe. I think you nailed it in terms of what does our like clinical trials and things where we start doing treatments and interventions for our patients. I mean, that's obviously a big chunk of the work I work we all do in academia. A most important part of reaching to that point is what is the right treatment? Who are the patient populations to target it? What are you going to use the treatment for? There are so many questions which needs to be answered. And those are the questions I would tell you are only answered by looking at what your clinical evidence from all the patients you have treated. I'll tell you the most, the most comprehensive clinical trials and the data or prospective studies which are done have emerged from myself or my colleagues' work, which they have found, hey, these are the last 10 patients, Ankit, I saw in the clinic, and I think this is what I'm seeing all the time happen to them. And now suddenly you go back and look at 5,000 cases and you find, hey, this is really a trend and we need to look at this and do more studies into it. And that has changed the treatment paradigm of how we do, and that has been crucial. So I think this is honestly, you know, real world data is obviously can be available in many different fashions and forms, but able to interpret the data in the retrospective fashion, it is extremely crucial. And I think that's the first thing I have all medical students, residents, fellows who work with me and train with me. I'm like, hey, what do you see in your clinic? Where is the challenge you find? Let's bring on, let's talk about that. And that not only engages them, but 100 of the 100 times they come up with a question which we can solve and have come up with a fantastic solution to it. 
Yeah, it definitely provides a different perspective, right? A different lens through which you're seeing not just basically personal anecdotes in your own experience, right? But being able to pull together patients from across different treatment settings and really be able to analyze in that way. So I think there is certainly a really powerful aspect of it. But of course, real world data, it has all of the things that you expect in the real world, which is imperfection. The real world is not a scientific experiment the way that clinical trials are. And so can you talk a bit about the way to approach real-world data, right? What's the mindset when going in, knowing that there are going to be imperfections in that data? So, you know, Zoe, that's another fantastic point because I think it's extremely important, no matter what work we do, may it be clinical trials or retrospective studies or real-world data, it is to understand, you know, what are the pros and cons of that system or what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of the thing which you are going to explore, right? And so I think, you know, the imperfections are the ones you really want. And that's why real-world data has its own advantages, right? I mean, clinical trials are so structured, you know, we have set criteria for when patients gets into the study, what exactly the medication does, what exactly to do for every fluctuation in the lab parameter. But we know that doesn't always happen in real world settings. And that is fine, right? We don't anticipate that we will be functioning like clinical trials with every single patient we see. And that's not how it exists. And so I think utilizing that information, that strength of real world data has its advantages and kind of saying that, hey, my question is to try to understand what happens to frail patients with leukemias and how they do. Now we know those are the patients are not gonna make into clinical trials. They are in real world and how are you gonna approach that treatment to them? And I think that's the strength we would wanna use for real world. Now, at the same point, we have to be cognizant about its weaknesses, right? And you know, as we go along in our discussion, you know, we'll bring up one of the work which we all are collaborating on is, is kind of what we call this real world response response criteria for diseases, right? We know that a lot of diseases, maybe blood cancers or not or solid tumors, we don't always exactly follow the criteria. You know, in solid tumors, we call the resist criteria. That's not always done in clinical practice. That has been well proven. Oma, we have the IMWG criteria, which is also not done. You know, all of these are done half of the time, 50% of the time. So that is a weakness. But how to use that as your strength is something we have to look into it when we do these analysis or data, look at these data. Right, for sure. Yeah. And as someone who is not a clinician and not a data scientist by any means, but having worked with multiple myeloma data, especially recently with some of our partners, there's definitely a lot of complexity there to thinking about when can you assign certain response values? When do you not? What is comparable and what is not? So there's certainly a lot of details there. You know, you mentioned that using real world data and thinking about this kind of research is something that you recommend and try and build into your teachings with your residents and your fellows, right? How do you get them in that right kind of mindset and perspective of thinking about these imperfections, right? Because I think there's a very technical aspect to it of what do you do with certain data elements, right? But then there is also an attitude and mindset as well of thinking to your exact point, right? How do you take imperfections or what might be perceived as a weakness and instead turn it into a strength so that practically, right, this research might show us something that clinical trials don't offer. 
Yeah, no, that's, you know, so awesome you mentioned that. And I think it's, you know, all the residents, the fellows or the medical students or anybody who is wanting to be a career in, in this field is listening to this. I think an important point to understand is as clinicians, as physicians, we all have this thought process going in our head all the time. Our brains are wired 360 degrees and 24-7. They're wanting to think of change, improve, how can we grow? You know, and I give a very simple example. About six months ago, I had a patient, one of the residents who reached out to me. We have patients with aggressive therapies like CAR T-cell therapies being admitted to the hospital. And, you know, they get on these cardiac monitors. We started doing that three, four years ago. You know, it's like as a blanket, oh, this is a very high risk thing. Everybody should be on monitors, this and that. And he's like, Dr. Consagra, I don't think we need this. And I'm like, Eddie, why do you think we don't need this? And he's like, because I think I have seen last so many patients and this has really not helped find anything. This is a cost burden to us. This is not adding any value. Like, let's look at it, Eddie. And he looked at it. He looked at the last many patients. He looked at the data and he came back to me and said, here's the evidence that doing telemetry monitoring, cardiac monitoring probably doesn't add value for everybody. It might be better for some subsets or some people. And so I think this is just a simple example that kind of comes out of the inquisitive thinking an individual does. And then as residents and medical students, as we grow into our career, we are so much, I would say, our blinders on our sides. You know, we kind of are pigeonholed into thinking so many small things. So I think as much as they do earlier on their career, I think that's fantastic. And I think we come up with ideas like this and learning all these data sets on what to use. It's so crucial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really shaping the way that we approach, I think, both learning medicine, teaching medicine and practicing medicine as well. And that's something that, you know, I think is very important to everyone at CODA is to be able to be a part of that influence, right? And thinking about how to push that forward. Definitely. So last year, you collaborated with CODA on some research that actually resulted in publication at ASH. So can you talk a bit about that research that we worked on together? Yeah, no, definitely. So I think the work which I had a chance to work with our COTA group was along the lines of myeloma. First of all, as, as our listeners are hearing here, you know, myeloma is such an evolving field. You touched on it briefly earlier that, you know, there is so many data points in the evaluation and the treatment of myeloma that we have so, so many unanswered questions. In the last 10 years, there has been more than like 10 or 15 different therapies and medications approved for myeloma. And what that has led is as many answers we have solved, the double number of questions have came up, and which is a good problem to have. But I think it's also extremely important that we continue to look for it. Now, one of the challenges we have in myeloma is what I call as this Bell's curve of the patients. You know, there are some patients who do amazing. Means that I say one fourth of the patients are going to do great in their treatment, but two fourths are in the middle curve. You know, we have seen with COVID, we have seen so many of these curves now. And so the two fourths are going to do great. But then there is one fourth of the patients who relapse very quickly. They don't do well. Their diseases are very aggressive. And interesting enough, we don't always know when we start the treatment for these patients that how are they going to act or how are they going to behave what we call as clinical high risk patients now over time we have learned that very likely these patients don't always have great outcomes because their disease myeloma turns to be very aggressive even though initially it was thought not to be aggressive by the based on some of the, the well-known testing which we do in myeloma called the mutation analysis or fish analysis 
Now, so what we set down and, you know, one of the big advantages of Kota has been, you know, they have, you all have a robust data set for multiple myeloma. Over last many years, you have accumulated tons of patients, three, 4,000 patients. And for a rare disease like myeloma, there are less than 30,000 patients or 35,000 patients a year being diagnosed with multiple myeloma. 3,000 is a big number of patients. 4,000 is a big number of patients along the spectrum of their disease. And so, you know, what we embark on to look on is what is happening to these individuals whose myeloma is relapsing very early after their initial diagnosis. What we called is within like a year and a half of their diagnosis. Now we know that myeloma can stay with initial treatment and remission for three or four years. But are the ones who have disease relapse in less than a year and a half and what happens to them because that is an area which is really not tapped into because first of all if we can identify those patients we should be able to or we can or we can design clinical trials or or interventions where we can act on these patient populations much more differently than you would do otherwise i think this data set what we looked at really provided an insight for us that really what is happening out in the community what is happening out in the real world is how are we treating these patients because this is the information me as clinicians my colleagues all around the country we can take back and say hey well we should be treating these individuals different kind of agents different therapies certainly right now what we have but also designing clinical trials so i think this has impetus for three things i would say first is definitely understanding what is happening to these myeloma patients when they relapse early Second thing is, what are we using treatments for it? Are we being very aggressive in the community when we are treating this? Or are we not doing the, not being aggressive? And then the third thing, it is certainly an hypothesis generating is, let's act, let's do things differently for these patient population, right? And so I think this is exactly what you want to do with the real world data set, right? You want to test a hypothesis, what you are seeing in your clinical practice. You want to generate data, which is, helpful for your practice today. And then you want to have some hypothesis which can be used for future trials. So that goes to the the whole spectrum of using any data to kind of make the most out of it. Right, right. Yeah, and I like the journey that you mapped out, right, in terms of going all the way from understanding to actually using this and translating that into action, both in terms of the way that you're actively treating patients, as well as thinking about future therapies and what targets there are, where are the areas of unmet need. And I think a lot of the research that comes out of real-world data, right, it's still a relatively new field, right? And of course, the FDA, I think, has been really supportive in encouraging the use of real-world data. But of course, they have very stringent requirements when it comes to using it as part of approvals. You know, I'm curious more so in the medical practice side, right, amongst clinicians, amongst physicians, what is the view of research that comes out of real world data? Is it very readily accepted and translated into action? How does it get disseminated amongst that community? Really curious to hear more about that. That's such a fantastic point, Zoe. And I think I will tell you three things about it too. First of all, medical community really looks these data when we look at the data with its own imperfections or the scenarios with its own imperfections. This is really what we see in clinical practice, right? This is what we are 
are doing every single day from 8 to 6 p.m. And so I will tell you, I get a call every single day from my community colleagues who are taking care of patients. It's like, you know, we are doing this treatments. They are, we don't always have compatible clinical trials. Like, Ankit, what do you think? You know, what is the data talking about? I will tell you some things which we really made a lot sense out just in last year is in the CAR-T landscape. Now, this CAR-T met studies where like 100, 110 patient studies, which led to FDA approval of these products, which is, there was still quite a bit of patients when we were doing these studies. But since this approval, we have had thousands of patients who have been treated in organizations like CIBMTR, various other organizations who have collected this information, have been able to make really important information can we expand to a different age bracket? Can this be done in older patients? Can we do this in patients with frail conditions? Is using steroids more often reasonable? Is using tocilizumab more often reasonable? What are you do for bridging therapy? None of these questions were answered in clinical trials, I will tell you this. These questions were answered by real world data, by the data which are prospectively collected by various organizations I just mentioned. So I will tell you there is not a single day which goes by where I don't look for data coming out like this, which can help me take care of my patient today. Yeah, that's so critical. And I think that's really great to hear from someone in my position as I don't see patients, right? And the work that I do here, I think it's really always great to keep in mind what is that end goal, right? When we think about being patient-centric, like what does this actually mean in terms of how we're curating this data, what kinds of research collaborations we're pursuing? I think that is so important and always keeping in mind that. So it's always great to hear that perspective for sure. How do you think about 2021, new year, kind of fresh start? What are some of your research goals and plans with World World Data this year? You know, I think this year, as, as you mentioned, 2021 is a new start with includes a lot of craziness from 2020, right? And I think I will tell you there are a few things which I really hope to achieve in 21. And I think these the first, my goal is access to care. You know, my first big challenge, which I see myself facing is how can we make our amazing therapies accessible to patients and minorities? How can we make them accessible to patients who don't have all the resources available to go to major academic centers who are maybe older patients who are not going into clinical trials? My first real goal is how can we use real world data to help us get information on outcomes of these therapies in minorities? How can we improve these data to increase access to these therapies? So that's going to be a prime importance for us. The second goal I have is, which is kind of the newer goal because of what happened in 2020 and COVID, right? And so I think the big goal for us after what I just mentioned is how has COVID impacted the clinical practice, the clinical care, and more like the outpatient side of it. We have learned, I mean, the medical community had made tremendous advances, right? I mean, you know, a vaccine coming to us in less than a year. I mean, that has been unheard of, right? Science advanced like a super, super fast pace. But I will tell you here at UT and a lot of our collaborators and colleagues, we have been looking at that how has COVID first of all impacted patients, minorities for sure that has had a significant issues and especially in their cancer care. You know, are these patients delaying a lot of their preventive medications or interventions or treatments made be mammograms or colonoscopies? How has that affected on the outcomes of the treatment? Are these patients who are having delayed diagnosis, delayed care? And what do we need?
need to do to catch up on to those things and make sure that those things are kind of carried on in 21, 22 and beyond. Because we know that this pandemic is going to have a long lasting effect on us. And so what we want to do is kind of prepare ourselves as what science did. We want to do that on the clinical side of it. Right. Yeah, and I really wanted to home in on your comment about understanding access to care, I think, especially for minorities and other underrepresented populations in clinical trials. I know that it's certainly a goal of CODAs to make sure that the data that we have is representative of what the population in the U.S. looks like, right, as opposed to having it be more skewed to people maybe who have access to large academic medical centers. There's always naturally a bias in that, and so I think we certainly have it as a ourselves to also do that. But in terms of thinking about increasing access, is it that we don't know what are currently the blockages to access? Is it that we know what the blockages are, but we don't have the right tools or solutions to address them? I mean, that almost kind of has that same journey that you had, right? Which is first understand what the patterns and the problems are, and then you can start solutioning and turning that into action. And so in terms of minorities, right, and the disparities there, where are we along that journey in terms of understanding. Fantastic. Thanks for asking this question, Zoe. You know, maybe I think it would be helpful if we focus on a particular scenario so we can talk through this journey. And myeloma being near and dear to my heart, I can talk about that. So in myeloma, first thing first, we know that African Americans are affected twice as common as Caucasian patients with multiple myeloma, right? So that is the first challenge in the disease. The second thing, however, is less than 5% of the patients in clinical trials represent African-American population. And this has been a significant challenge, right? Because we really don't know, are these therapies equally efficacious in minorities? Are therapies have similar toxicities in these patient populations? Are the disease biology means that how their disease acts? Is it very similar between one race to the other race? So first of all, the first question is right at the gist of it, that who are these patient populations? How is the therapy affecting them? How is their outcomes defined? Now, FDA was ahead, and I think a lot of other organizations gathered up last year, I think right before ASH, I mean, right before COVID hit in, I think, January, February, where they got the group of investigators all around the country and stakeholders, patients, payers, a lot of pharma members, and kind of start thinking about it, that how can we increase access? And... I will tell you, obviously, the answers came out from not one point, right? There are so many things. You know, one is the socioeconomic burden to that population. One is travel issues. One is the misinformation or disinformation out there about diseases, therapies, interventions. And obviously, I just mentioned about clinical trials, enrollment on clinical trials. And last but not the least is understanding what is happening to these populations, right? So I think to deal with this, it is going to as in the journey part of it, I think, yes, first and foremost, we really need to understand that what is happening to the minority patients and then say, okay, you know, well, we are not accruing right number of patients to clinical trials. Let's think of how can we use different intervention? Does the patient need more financial support? Do they need more educational support? Do they need more liaisons in that community to help them understand things? And again, the solutions can be also multifaceted. And, and I don't think there is one thing which is going to fix everything. So having said that, the more important part is to get to understand all these things and which one is more important than not. And I think that is so crucial as we try to understand and finding solutions for increasing access for therapy. And I think real-world data has a huge, huge role in trying to understand 
the biology, the responses, what treatment are they getting? Why are they not getting particular treatment? Are they getting particular side effects? Multiple questions in that landscape can be answered with real world data. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. I think that goes to thinking of being very intentful and purposeful in the way that data is curated, right? And making sure that we're not just taking data that is either easily accessible, that we're really scrutinizing the data and making sure that we're matching this to the population that you're seeing in the show up in the clinic and making sure that we have that representation there, which is so critical. And then to your second point, you talked about how COVID, of course, is going to have a lot of lasting impacts, not only on, of course, people's health, our mindsets towards pandemics. I mean, it's so many aspects of life, right? But I think there's, a lot, I think a lot of people talk about this return to normal, and I'm not sure that it's the same normal as before, right? It's going to be a new normal. And what are some of the things coming out of this pandemic as a clinician that you think we can learn that might have been beneficial and that we should incorporate into our new normal? Yeah, so I think there are multiple things which we have learned, and I will just tell you some examples, you know, which we learned. First of all, you know, like the story in terms of treatments or interventions, what we learned. Examples was this notion of doing different medications, which was we were like, hey, this medication is good. This medication is not good. This is bad. This is not bad. Right. So that was like the first thing which we really sorted out, like the steroids, which are very commonly used now in patients with COVID were not used before when it started in March, April and May, I will tell you. We would not give patients steroids because we thought that would harm our patients, you know, and then suddenly a lot of data came out and learned that. And so going fast forwarding ourselves to this year. So I think what we are going to do. So the first thing is vaccination itself, right? The huge challenge for us is just testing and vaccination, right? Two big things. How are we going to test the patients who are, are at risk for or doing things? An example I give you at UT Southwest, and we did a drive for, and it's actively going where we are testing and going in the minority community of our Dallas community and suburbs of Dallas, which has very high proportion of underrepresented members. And as you probably saw, they are getting the least amount of testing. So this data helped us to understand that how can we test that community and how can we act on it? Second thing is, how are we going to get them to vaccination? The population who don't always have access, they don't always have resources to make it through them. You have to go there and give them, get them the vaccinations or resources. So I think those are really important points which we will be we are learning as we go. Third thing in terms of, you know, you mentioned how can we use data in terms of what we generate on every single day to help understand. I think the patterns of what is happening in the community, when is the next peak is going to happen? What are we going to do with those things? I think that's based on tons of data, which we are generating on a day-to-day basis. And last but not the least, I think, you know, how is treatment or how has COVID is going to help us stagger treatments in the hospitals or how is the hospitals going to adjust to these new norms? Are we going to do all surgeries? Are we going to do all transplants? Are we going to do all chemotherapies at once? How, what are the different ways of resource allocation. And I think a lot of those questions are being answered because of the data which we are generating from the patients, from the community, and and henceforth. 
Yeah, I think COVID has certainly made us grapple with some of these less comfortable truths, right, about inequity of care. And although I'm sure that it's existed all along in oncology and especially in multiple myeloma, I think sometimes it it happens so gradually that it probably doesn't quite hit, especially probably the average citizen as hard of, you know, how this happens. And so I do think it sheds light on this and the need to be very intentional about how we solve these problems. Hopefully we can take some of those learnings and apply it to other aspects of healthcare as well. Definitely. No, I think that's going to be. And honestly, I think you, you make such an important point that it is going to be important that we use these lessons, what we have learned. And, you know, like myeloma, you have 30,000 patients a year. And unfortunately, there are way more COVIDs in a day than there are in the myeloma patients. And so we have affected this thing very quickly, you know, in front of us. And that's the sad part, but we can act on it. Yeah, yeah. Did you see a lot of disruption to treatment for your myeloma patients or your other cancer patients throughout COVID? Not because they contracted COVID, but just because of hospital strain or anything else? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of different ways. I think we saw a lot of individuals, a lot of patients not going to find help or going to ask for help, first of all. So we have been seeing patients who have had my diseases kind of slowly brewing up and now coming in with more extreme or more ex- I would say, tail end of the symptoms or presentations. So that's one challenge we have seen. The second thing we also have noticed is we have needed to modify our treatment pathways in a way that we can adapt to it. Now, those challenges have been very different in individual parts of the country. Initially, we saw the East Coast, New York, New Jersey really heavily hit. They changed their treatment tremendously differently, you know, how they did. Down here in the South, we kind of had like peaks going up and down. So we changed, go back, change, go back. You know, that's what we kind of did down here in Texas. And I think our, again, on the West Coast, they did also a bit differently. So I think it certainly changed how we treated our patients. I think we are hoping to go back to quote unquote, kind of doing what we used to do before and trying not to have these things. Like if somebody needs a stem cell transplant, not trying to limit those important therapies for them just because of resources are being limited. Now we have to do those things, but institutions I will tell you have really stepped up to these challenges and we have planned around these things. I mean, we have at least once and if not twice a week discussions on resource allocation with COVID. Every spike we see, we you know sit down and talk about what needs to happen with every intervention, major intervention for sure. Right, right. And I'm hoping maybe this is something that real world data can capture too. You know, I think it'll probably take another year for us to really see any impacts or patterns that emerge from this, right? But to your point, I think the differences in how different geographies were impacted by this and the decisions of individual, you know, networks of providers and individual physicians too will be interesting to hear. I know that's something that, you know, at CODA, we've started capturing COVID information, both in terms of if a patient contracted COVID, but also if there was any delays due to lack of access or, you know, lack of desire to go access care during this time. And so I think that's something else that I just find really interesting about real world data is the ability to pivot very quickly and understand maybe not necessarily real time, but as much as you can, right, understand the situation that's currently happening because you know, no one's ever going to run a clinical trial in the middle, say, pretend a pandemic hits and <laughs> let's see what happens. <laughs> 
you know, fantastic point along, like, you know, you all stepped in quite early in this game to kind of think of having a futuristic vision that, okay, this is going to be the needs going on. You know, example is that COVID-19 consortium for the cancer care was built. It kind of did only focused on cancer patients on particular things, but, you know, it was kind of like retrospective data accumulations and gathering by multiple institutions around the country to kind of do some answers, some of the important questions as you are just raising. So yes, we will have to use these real world data to make some thoughtful treatment decisions. Yeah. Last question for you. What is your hope for real world data and what it can do for medicine? Yeah, so I think maybe I will answer this the long way and then the short way, because I think the importance goes back to how did real world data come into oncology, right? So, you know, the Cures Act from 2016, where where it was bill was passed saying that real world data can be used for drug approval, right? And so what we saw, I'll tell you three important drugs, which got approved over last close to a decade now, right? So the first one was blenitumumab or blend cyto in 2014, you know, that was a very small phase two study of 100 some patients that was compared to retrospective data accumulated by various organizations or various institutions and compared the data. They did it, said, hey, this looks good. FDA gave an approval. You know, the blend cyto or company making this went on and did a phase three trial and showed that it's good. So that's important. So that's the first use of it is how to get drug approval. The second drug, but I will tell you the challenge with it. The second drug we saw with was an approval of um, Evolumab. Evolumab is an antibody or is a checkpoint or a form of an immunotherapy for a really rare cancer called Merkel cell cancer. Now Merkel cells are very rare, like individual, like physicians will see one or two in their lifespan. Even specialists will see very few of them. And so what happened is there was a small trial, I think of 50, 60 patients, if I'm not wrong. And they compared to this data from the network, US oncology network around the country and kind of say, hey, would this be good? Now, what happened is, yes, it looked like the response rates were good, but the comparison was very small. Like I think 20 patients or 30 patients it was compared to, right? So really small comparison. And when you looked at those patients of 20 patients, like five already were on other clinical trials, three had some treatments, data granularity, the data depth wasn't that great, right? Important is, yes, we got a new therapy for our patients. You know, it came with a challenge for us to know that, hey, this is not the best way to just look at any data. We have to be very thoughtful about it. And then the third and the last medication which got approved was palbociclib. You know, palbociclib is a medication used for breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer. Now it has been approved for females with metastatic breast cancer. Now males also sometimes get metastatic breast cancer and this medication was not approved for it and henceforth, the company which was making this study used real world data to say, hey, this is similar benefit. And this time they got data from three different places. They got retrospective depositories, a flat iron cohort, and then the company had the data safety reporting and they combined all those things. Well, the challenge with this was they had to one place give adverse events, one place give, you know, what the treatments were. It was very broken up, I would say, in terms of what all these data pieces were, right? So I think, what are these three things teaching us? And what I really hope, the reason I want to, I say, let me give you the long answer is because I think we always have to learn from the mistakes we made to know what we can do better things in future, right? And so I think between these three medications, these are just three examples I put out, there are probably a few more, but I think the first thing we need to do is we need to have a good data set, the granularity, the information, 
the depth of the information in there has to be as best as possible. Now we know we can get data from a lot of different places, you know, I mean, insurance claims data and small studies and safety data sets, but things like what you all are trying to do again is, you know, I think there has been granularity, the depth of that information, the clarity of that information is going to be important. The second thing doesn't have to do a lot with the data, but it has to do that these real world data sets, real world evidences, we have to understand its pros and cons. We talked about it, its weaknesses too. And it's not by itself, we should say, once you say it's comparable to real world, better than real world, I think as clinicians, as uh, clinician scientists, we need to understand that, that clinical trials and randomized clinical trials are at a place and still have an importance in terms of studying a drug, and we should not forget that. So I think that's an important part to it. And third, but an important part to this is what I hope to also see from real world data set is not just using like lab analysis or x-ray analysis and things like that, but going beyond that. And what does that mean? That means that using mobile health, how can you incorporate patient reported outcomes? How can you quality of life information? Because that is very crucial in terms of how we are going to advance different therapies and fields. When there are three different drugs, very same drugs, if one has better advantage in, in quality of life and outcomes, patient reported outcome, that is an important medication to use rather than the other two medications. So I think this is going to be in the real world setting where we would go beyond the plain old labs and scans and doctor visits and notes, but kind of using these informations and say, hey, how can we have a holistic approach? So I think my future, I think I see all these three things happening, you know, not forgetting our vision that real world data has a strong place and we have to use our, it's kind of like a two-edged sword. You have to use it appropriately. Second thing is going beyond the basic labs. And third thing I just mentioned, you know, it has significant impact on the next day. The day you find the data, you could bring it to your practice the next morning, you know, or even the same day. And not forgetting that piece that these interventions Real-world data has a huge impact on our clinical practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that is an incredible vision for real-world data. And I hope that, you know, everyone in this ecosystem, of course, CODA included, will work towards uh, getting to that point because I think it can be extremely powerful. And at the end of the day, it is about the patient outcomes, right? Not like you were saying, not just in terms of what is measured in the lab, but how the patient is actually feeling and can function day to day. And so I always love any chance I have to talk to clinicians because you guys are at the center of it all of doing the research and staying up to date with all the new developments and advising on that. And of course, you know, the ultimately the most critical part is really providing the care to the patients. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us today. It was always great, as always, to chat with you. And I know that we will continue collaborating and continue this dialogue. And so really appreciate it, Dr. Consagra. Thank you, Zoe. You know, this was fantastic. I think you brought up just amazing questions. And I think these are ongoing debates, which we're going to continue and look forward to working again for the whole 21 and beyond with Kota. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. See ya. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.